0: I'm Michael Izakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan
1: Clydman, Editor-in-Chief
0: of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at SkullduggeryPod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. There's a virus in the world. For some people, the virus is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Some say the virus is isn't that bad others say it's malicious and dangerous since there are those who still can't see it wouldn't it be smart to tell the truth about the virus since there is a virus
1: the lincoln project is responsible for the content of this advertising
0: That's a controversial new campaign ad from The Lincoln Project, a group of never-Trumper Republicans who are seeking to weaponize the corona crisis and use it to defeat the president in this fall's election. It was conceived as a play on the famous 1984 Bear in the Woods ad used by Ronald Reagan's campaign to highlight the threat of Soviet communism. When the virus narrator makes the point that the public needs to hear the truth, since, as he says, there is a virus, it dissolves into a picture of Donald Trump. We'll talk to one of the Never Trumper Republicans behind the ad, veteran GOP consultant John Weaver, and we'll talk to Democratic strategist Joe Trippi about what to expect in a campaign conducted in the middle of a national public health emergency on this episode of Skullduggery.
2: Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook.
0: I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Dan Kleidman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: So we just had a primary election in three states Tuesday night. Joe Biden won convincingly in any other scenario uh, and time and place. We would be talking about nothing but that. Instead, the country is looking at a potential economic meltdown locked in their homes as the coronavirus only intensifies.
1: And yet the election goes on and it is, I think, forever altered by this coronavirus crisis. The political landscape has been completely shaken up. We're going to get into what it is like to campaign in the time of the coronavirus and what this means for you know the assumptions of the two candidates about what their campaign message was going to be. This is all unfolding in real time very quickly. There are going to be a lot of twists and turns. But given the economic catastrophe that this could cause, given all sorts of questions about the res- government response, this is going to fundamentally change the dynamics of this race, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. But we've got a couple of really smart people to give their insights about that very issue.
0: Right, exactly. And I got to say, this Lincoln Project ad, Lincoln Project being this group of never-Trump-or-Republicans, which is seeking to exploit Trump's handling or mishandling of the coronavirus crisis, is, I think, pretty significant because it's really the first naked political attack attack on the president over this. And I think in some ways it's going to make it easier for Biden and the Democrats to hammer the president on an issue they might have been a little wary before because we're in a national emergency. There's an instinct not to uh, go after the president in the midst of a real crisis. But the fact that never Trump or Republicans are going there, I think, could open the door in a way that it might not have been opened had Democrats tried to make an ad like this one and I should point out that one of those guests we've got is John Weaver, one of the principals in the Lincoln Project who helped uh, put together this ad. We'll be talking to him. And before that, we've got uh, Joe Trippi, a veteran Democratic consultant who's uh, really done a lot of work on the how the internet is used in political campaigning and uh, obviously uh, since we're moving into this brave new world of of uh, virtual campaigning, his insights are particularly valuable.
1: Well, I gotta say, I think you're right that uh, the Lincoln Project maybe gives the Democrats some cover to go after Trump in a political fashion in this uh, in this emergency. But I think Donald Trump has also given them a fair amount of cover as well, given his conduct. Even during this uh, crisis, he has not stopped attacking democrats on twitter or the media or frankly anyone else so i think these are the times that we live in now and it used to be that uh, there was a kind of a decent interval a quiet period after a national crisis before things turned into naked partisanship that is gone it
0: certainly is and uh, we are in a space where i think it's probably a reminder that uh, no matter how dire And catastrophic, this crisis is political skullduggery shall continue. So let's get to it. We now have with us John Weaver, veteran Republican strategist and uh, a principal in the Lincoln Project, a group of never-Trumpers who have just put out a uh, controversial ad about the virus and the election. John, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be with you. So the ad, which is getting some attention today, there's a virus in the world, plays off of the current crisis and then ends up... With a photo of Donald Trump uh, With the narrator saying Since there is a virus The implication is That Donald Trump Is the real viral threat uh, To the country Is that the intention of this ad? Well look Mike uh, The ad as you know is a takeoff of, off
3: Of the brilliant Reagan ad In 1984 when he was running Against Walter Mondale And there, was, there were people in the United States Who didn't really believe the Soviet threat was real or as significant as the Reagan administration. So they ran an ad called The Bear, in in which a narrator talked about uh, the threat a bear might pose, whether it would be dangerous or not dangerous. And wouldn't it be wise to take precautions in case the bear actually existed and was dangerous? And so Rick Wilson and I reviewed, constantly looking for ideas. We thought that ad was apropos for the time. Look, here in America today, we're, we face two viruses. Unfortunately, there's a pandemic that we're facing along with the citizens of the world, and I hope and pray that everyone listening to this is okay. The other virus we're facing is Trumpism. That is a virus that is fights the truth, is anti-science, is pro-ignorance, is pro-propaganda. It has hollowed out both our national security Apparatus within the federal government, but also hollowed out um, people within the healthcare field within the federal government. And it left the country more vulnerable than it would have been otherwise to this pandemic, and that was the point we're trying to make today, that ad.
1: So, John, uh, throughout most of our history, uh, most of my lifetime, our lifetimes, I think, uh, in in times of national emergency, whether it's, you know, war, 9-11, there was this kind of rallying around the president and Americans putting uh, the country above a party and even supporting the president, which we all did. Uh, A lot of people did it when, you know, with George W. Bush, during 9-11. Does Trump transcend that? I mean, is that not possible? Is that not the right instinct for people to have at this moment of crisis?
3: The right right instinct right now is to support one another, to support the frontline healthcare professionals who who are battling this. But look, Donald Trump is unfit for office. Just a few days ago, his campaign sent out a tweet calling Joe Biden a dead corpse. He continues to attack governors and other leaders who are trying to deal with this pandemic almost on a daily basis. He's divided this country in a terrible way. Before the pandemic, we were facing an existential battle for the soul of the country. Abraham Lincoln had to go through a very tough reelection campaign in the middle of the Civil War. And Lincoln longed for reconciliation, but only after the threat was dealt with. And that's what we're facing in our country. Yes, we need to do the right thing and come together on a bipartisan fashion in dealing with the pandemic. But we also have to deal with this other virus that is impacting our country in such a negative way.
0: I guess, uh, John, two things on that. Number one is the threat from the virus really is uh, serious, and it's one where people are craving for real information, real hard information that they can rely on to know how to conduct their lives right now. And the only place that we're getting it on a national basis is from the White House. Now, granted that Trump's commentary all along has been deceptive, minimizing it, clearly not what the country needed. But in the last few days, he's come around, he's realized the seriousness of this. And if you resort to political attacks to undermine the president during a time of national crisis. Are you susceptible to the argument that or vulnerable to the argument that you're making things worse and leaving people even more at sea as to what they should believe and what they should do? Well, well, Mike, look,
3: there are some very incredible people who are dealing with this at the national level. And quite frankly, the president has every right, and and, and he certainly takes advantage of it, to come out and and brief the country. Uh, If I was in the White House, not that he would listen to me, but a normal president, you would have Dr. Fauci speaking on a constant basis to the American people. He's trusted, and his information is correct, and he pulls no punches. People want to hear the truth, no matter how difficult it may sound, and, and deal with it. Uh, The president, you never have a sense that he's telling you the truth. But more importantly, look at the divide in this country between people who believe this is a serious issue and those who don't. And look at the states where we have governors who are firm supporters of the president who are not doing anything to deal with the crisis. And and I'm talking about the governor of Texas, the governor of Florida. Many of the governors in in the Deep South are not taking the same approach as some of the more effective governors around the country who had to step up in in Trump's absence. Look, I'm all for everyone doing the most that they can personally and as a society. But at the same time, this is an election year. This president has divided this country. He's unleashed a whole host of ills on our society. And I'm not going to go through all of them here. We can't forget that we're in the middle of an election. And I would certainly hope, Mike, that you would suggest to the White House that they that the president stop with his tweets attacking people, his commentary attacking the media, his commentary attacking whole groups of people, his campaign from trying to fundraise. Hey John,
0: I I, I don't think he they I don't think they'd listen to me any more than they'd listen to you. So uh, I don't know that there's much use in, in me trying to give any uh, advice. But you know, there's there's the other point <laughs> which I was going to make, which is that it, you know it's Trump who divides the country. It's Trump who politicizes everything, and some could argue you're playing into his hands by mounting a political attack during a crisis. Look, if you're fighting against propaganda, whether that was propaganda that
3: occurred in the 1930s in certain countries or propaganda that's uh, in other countries today, is the best approach the truth or is the best approach to be
0: silent and let it move forward? What is it? Well, I mean, clearly the truth should prevail for everybody. (laughs) I, I think we'd agree with that. If the truth makes some people uncomfortable, and if the truth
3: makes the people who are speaking the untruths angry, so be it. Yeah, that's just the, unfortunately that's the way it is. We were, we've been able to conduct political campaigns in environments that were tougher than this, different obviously, but tougher than this. A civil war, a world uh, World War II, things were said about leaders. And they were real leaders in those conflicts, not with social media, obviously, but with the tools that were at, at hand. It's no different. But we will, we will fight for the truth no matter what stakes there are. And I, I don't understand why people other than those who spout propaganda would be upset about that.
1: Hey, John, the whole premise of the Lincoln Project is that the president is a danger to the republic and therefore has to be removed. I guess one question is, do you believe that, that President Trump is a threat to the health of Americans in terms of his response and his downplaying of this threat for the first few weeks and how well, he's I mean, handled well, the first it uh, two, uh, throughout?
3: For the first two months, what he considered as a political problem and not a not a health or policy issue Certainly, he put more Americans at risk. But he's been a long-term risk to this country since he became president. We've been fortunate; we've not had a foreign policy or national security crisis, uh, a large one, under his tenure. He's just uh, the fickle gods have been kind to him and to this nation. But is he is he a danger to the health of the republic writ large? Yes. And has he endangered Americans? Not on purpose, just because he, but because he's selfish cares only about himself in the initial couple of months of this healthcare crisis. Yes, he has. He seems to have come around. I think it's quite frankly because he knows that his political future is on the line uh more so than anything else
0: let's uh game out the uh the rest of this election campaign um candidates are not going to be able to hold rallies neither trump nor biden reverting to a front porch campaigns that uh, uh, of the 19th century in some ways yeah william um, howard taft would be happy Taft, he yeah taft did it because he didn't like to move around so much <laughs> he had a lot to move around right yeah how do you see this campaign playing out in this sort of environment where people right now are essentially and you know locked in their homes, uh, been told to stay six feet or more away from each other? You know, it's really hard to imagine what kind of campaign we're going to have
3: it is, it is, Mike. and. Um... I mean, we don't know yet about the political conventions. My sense is that they're going to have to be altered. I don't know how you do that by Zoom or something. It's hard to get your head around that, quite frankly. But we do have the technology to do it. There's also now, because of what we've seen in interference in our 2016 election and attempts to interfere in this one, that campaigning by electronic device is fraught for error, right, and and concern and open to conspiracy theories and all of that. So that's a different problem that we may be facing. I don't really have a good answer for you because no one has been through, through any of this, you know, quite frankly. Uh, but hopefully by the time we get to the fall, we've moved out of this pandemic situation. And while I don't sense that we're going to be seeing – large rallies. I think the candidates may be able to move around the country by that stage. But but who knows really about that?
0: You know, the other uh, side of this is to game the race. At this point, we've got, uh, you know, the the Dow has now tanked to the point where it's uh, about where it was when Donald Trump took office. So and the country seems to be headed for into a certain recession that could be very deep and very serious. So that sort of takes away one of the main pillars of Trump's reelection campaign, something he was counting on for all along. If you take that away from Donald Trump, what's he got left? And how do you assess the race against Biden at this point?
3: Well, we are headed into a recession. And as you know, historically, candidates of the governing party who have tried to run for either election or re-election when there's been a recession in the second fiscal quarter have not fared well. It doesn't really matter if the economy starts to improve in the fourth quarter. People don't sense it at that stage, right? So, for example, George H.W. Bush, the economy was starting to turn around, but nobody had that feeling about it by the time people went to the polls. What Trump was hoping to run on a bumper sticker campaign about the economy, right? You know, it's the greatest economy in history. He can't say that now. We're looking at unemployment that could be somewhere between, I've seen reports today, between six and a half and in the mid-teens by sometime this summer. And so he's going to have a very difficult time. Joe Biden is the one person he didn't want to run against. He was willing to put an ally into harm's way and get himself impeached in order not to run against Joe Biden. And here he is after all of that, facing a guy who, in my opinion, can lead the army of the decent with a strong campaign and win a, a pretty significant electoral college victory, assuming that there's not some crazy surprise. And, of course, who could have ever predicted a pandemic, so I don't put anything out of it.
1: The mission of the of uh, the Lincoln Project has been to remove Donald Trump. I assume that that you all yeah, our um, goal is to try to since move since Biden enough
3: disaffected Republicans and Republican leaning independents in key electoral college states to help the Democrat nominee win the election and to assist in the defeat of the president's enablers in the Senate, particularly. There's a lot of overlap between those states, Arizona, North Carolina, et cetera. And that's what we're working towards. Steve Bannon so, himself said, if we were successful in moving three to 5% of Republicans, the president could not get reelected. And that was before the pandemic and before this certain recession.
1: But your organization is mostly made of Republicans. So is there a risk and is it okay if you move the Senate into Democratic yeah, The Republican hands?
3: Party, as I knew it, You know, and Mike knows, I've grew up in this business. It doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's it's become a cult. Whether that's (laughs) from careerism or cowardice or what have you, it doesn't exist. I have a hope that uh, if they lose almost everything and they find themselves in a demographic box canyon, that perhaps there's some hope that a different center-right party within the GOP can emerge. But for now, the people... You know, Trump conducts himself this way largely because he's put so much fear in Republican senators and some House members. They need to understand that there's a price for that. And if that means that we have a Democratic Senate for two years or four years— so be it.
0: John, tell us a little bit about the Lincoln Project. We know you, Rick Wilson, George Conway is uh, active in it. But what are you guys, a a super PAC? Are you raising money? Are you spending money? Do you plan to spend lots of money to defeat uh, Donald Trump? What's the vision for the Lincoln Project? And what are you?
3: You know, we're a band of Republicans, some very conservative, some more moderate among the group. Some of us fought against each other in primaries and campaigns past. None of us really knew each other very well. I've never met George Conway in person. I only recently met Rick Wilson. So we have a super PAC. We are building out an organization in, in the key states uh, on the ground. We are raising money uh, both at the grassroots level and larger amounts of money. And we intend to spend every dime of what we raise to help defeat Trump and to go after Senate races, primarily in Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina, Maine, Iowa. And then we're open minded about some other. How
0: much money have you raised? How much money do you hope to raise? And do you have some big financial backers? Uh, We've raised about two and a half million dollars in two months.
3: All grassroots money Raised because of Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or what have you. Average donation, I think, is like fifty-six dollars or something like that. We do have some large financial backers who have recently come online. I'm not going to get into who they are because they'll be disclosed, of course. But um, we hope to raise thirty-five, forty million dollars hmm. and hmm. Um, spend it, you know, in the places that you have grown accustomed to and presidential elections and, you know, aimed at Republicans in a targeted fashion in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Arizona, North Carolina, places like that. And look, between all of us, we've, you know, we've worked in every state. We've worked for most of the Republican presidential candidates since Reagan. Uh, We have a wealth of experience. We've seen almost everything. We've never seen anything like Trump, but we've seen almost everything. And we burned the bridges behind us. Right,
0: <laughs> I would say uh, say you did. Uh, that gives us a little more freedom to do the <laughs> right thing. We should point out that John <laughs> is talking from Austin, Texas, uh, hence the uh, reference to uh, mm-hmm. Sam Houston. Well, fascinating, and I didn't realize you guys were as have plans to be as active as you are. I'll be um, scouring the FEC reports to see uh, when you disclose who your big financial backers are. Uh, that could be some news in and of itself. But John, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery and uh, we hope to have you back as the campaign unfolds.
3: That's great. Keep the Skullduggery going. <laughs>
0: okay. All right. We are now joined by Joe Trippi, veteran Democratic strategist. Joe, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be with you. So, look, um, a big night last night in the election season, probably uh, overshadowed to a great degree by the crisis we're all living in. But Biden took all three states convincingly. Is this race effectively over?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think it's been over for for a while, but the, you know, certainly last night it ended any hope Bernie Sanders has or any reason that he could legitimately want to continue on. I just don't think, in, not just politically, but in the current environment with the crisis, that it makes any sense.
0: So he has not yet dropped out. Should he?
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's okay. any uh, anything for him to gain. I think it gets worse for him. The longer this goes on, the current environment plays completely to Biden. Where was Biden in the last financial crisis that we faced? Oh, yeah. Vice President for Barack Obama as fiscal stimulus and all the things that had to happen to get us out of that. Yes, it was a slow recovery, but it was a successful recovery. Who was there? Joe Biden. Who was there with Ebola? Oh. Vice President Biden. I mean, in other words, all the things that are going on right now play to Biden's experience, to his calm demeanor, to his leadership style, and to try to move the debate. And by the way, both of those things are things that everybody cares about right now. And for Bernie to continue on, he either has to fight Biden on those areas, which are playing to Biden's strength, or to try to completely move the debate to things that may have been very, very important in the Democratic debate weeks ago or months ago. But today, having a debate about Medicare for all versus Medicare for all who want it is not going to be a debate. I think that most people are going to want to continue, given where we are and the immediacy of now and how Biden fits that in juxtaposition to Trump.
1: Joe, it's really astonishing, the turnaround, because Bernie Sanders, the power behind his campaign was in some ways that he was, it was an insurgency. He was calling for a revolution, to use his own word. And here we are today when it seems like what people actually want is competence. They want normalcy, and they want to get back to where we were before coronavirus. So, have you ever seen a kind of a political landscape change as dramatically as this one appears to have, to have changed?
2: Uh, one, I don't really think it has it changed that much. I think we may have misread what was going on, or a lot of people did. I think that the Democratic Party electorate was always looking for the moderate, pragmatic, lead us out of this. The mess that was going on at the time might have been different than this one, but the Trump mess, right? And there were just so many people who filled that position. And I'm not talking about Elaine. I mean, there were just a lot of people. Kamala Harris, Amy Globuchar, Mayor Pete, Joe Biden for sure. But that group, you know, there were really only two people fighting outside of that, Bernie and Warren. And Warren was doing a pretty good job, I think, of sort of playing in both places. It ended up not working out for her. But I think basically once it got down to, it was going to always get down to Bernie and one of them. There were people who had chances to be the, you know, which one. But Biden's, I always thought that Biden's overriding strength with African-Americans, his familiarity and goodwill that he had with Democratic voters was going to make, him, the other person, and it would be a Biden-Bernie race, and that once that happened, Bernie had no way to nowhere to go. I mean, there's just no way. Right. He, Joe Biden. There's no anybody but Joe Biden. Movement out there, there wasn't anybody but Hillary. Movement, I think, it was in the party that benefited Bernie. But he's re- but one of the things that's clear now is that doesn't exist for him this time around.
1: So if the politic, the political landscape hasn't changed in that sense, one way that it has changed radically is the mechanics of campaigning. And you know, this is largely going to be relevant to a general election. But talk to us about what happens now? You know, politics is a, is a contact sport. It's about social connections. And here we are at a time of national social distancing. So talk about how these campaigns, both the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign, are going to deal with this.
2: Well, I mean, I first of all, I suspect this is going to be with us all the way through November. It, you know whether it's, it's' heightened or not, but it will be there, there will be implications. And I think one of them is may end up being um, the first no touch presidential campaign. Or campaign cycle. It will be. It'll be a historic difference. And you're right. Fighting coronavirus means social distancing and running for president is, in politics in general is social contact, lots of it, as much of it as you can get. Those two things will not mix. And we're seeing it. They're going to you know, we'll have everything from teletown halls where the campaigns will invite thousands of people to call into a, a number and hear the candidates speak instead of rallies. It's going to be a completely different campaign. I mean, one of them is just people have no idea. I don't think most people have the real concept of just how many other people a candidate moving or traveling causes to move and travel. I mean, it's the advanced teams. There's there's all kind of security. There's all, particularly once both have Secret Service, you have a ton of moving parts, and those people, by the way, the campaigns are really good about social distancing, particularly with the press. Uh, they can keep the press far away from the candidate well they can they can impose those and make them work as a candidate travels around. But the advanced people they don 't get to do that they 've got there 's no way to build a you know to advance a candidate without having a lot of personal contact, same with security, same with... So all those moving parts I've got have stopped and I think will stop, and including door-to-door canvassing, including how you're going to get out the vote in that environment. And frankly, I think we've got to look at you know vote-by-mail nationwide in the November election, all the changes that that would need to entail, but the smart thing would be for legislatures and in the, in the federal government to figure, start working on that now, because that could be a real possibility. You know,
0: Joe, uh, it, as you speak, it uh, occurs to me that we're essentially going to be reverting to the 19th century when candidates didn't leave their front porches, right? The front, front porch strategy. Um, and uh, I thought of that when uh, Biden was, uh, gave his little uh, talk last night, victory talk last night from his home in Delaware they'll
2: be streaming from their from their front porch exactly that's right. likely to be how this goes all right
0: but there's a lot of steps a lot of elements to a presidential campaign including conventions how are we going to have political conventions this summer in this environment uh, i mean trump said the other day that this could last to july or august that's convention season so as a very practical matter, I mean, I, I assume people at the DNC and RNC are thinking about this now, but how do you envision it playing out?
2: I really don't think we're going to have conventions. Uh, I don't see that happening. I hope so, but I think both parties have to prepare for some kind of virtual convention where people can, uh, where delegates can vote by phone securely.
0: On an app like the one used in Iowa?
2: Yeah, well, (laughs) hopefully one that works better than that. But, yeah, I mean, there's going to have to be some other way to do this. I also think, look, the reality is, and we all know this, conventions, there's not going to be a brokered convention now. Can we get over that one again for the final time? (laughs) (laughs) There's not going to be a brokered convention. Um, They've been, you know, they're basically produced television shows for the party. So I think the party could produce one, you know, four-hour piece of one night television and produce it and then have the uh, nominee the next night do his his, uh, speech at biden i mean and announce their vp right and that's it and the rest of it is all you know yeah they're delegates but whatever they do if they do need to vote on something do it securely um you know on a phone or some other method there are plenty of ways to do that and since I don't really think any of the votes are going to matter anyway. I'm not even sure it has to be all that secure.
0: Well, there, there, there are platform battles inevitably, uh, rules issues that tend to come up. They're
2: all going to have to happen virtually on the. I mean, on a conference call, unless. This changes quickly, and I don't think it's going to change quickly enough.
0: By the way, I, I just wanted to point out uh, because I was grabbed, I, I noticed the title of the book you wrote some years ago: "The Revolution Will Not Be Televised: Democracy, the Internet, and the Overthrow of Everything." I'm not sure if you anticipated the world we're in right now, but well, uh,
1: actually, actually, let yeah. me let me pick up on that because what I've been wondering is if there's a way in which the candidates actually will be able to reach more people this way through a sort of a smart use of technology i mean after all you can only touch so many people on the rope line right i mean that's that's really more about the pageantry of politics
2: uh, no that's right and i think one of the campaigns i thought that did that better than anybody this cycle was elizabeth warren they really i think found lots of ways to engage online with people in a way that might be more important now as we you know if 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 we are going into the no touch presidential campaign. I do think we're going to see inventive campaigning. It's going to be innovative. I mean, one of the things is, you know, the Dean campaign was fostered out of necessity. We had to try the Internet. We had to try to do way before it was ready. But we found a lot of ways to succeed at reaching people directly in a way that I think, you know, did speed other campaigns to, to try new things. Well, this is going to make both the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign innovate. They have to find ways to use the technology to connect. And I think they will. I think we'll see new things and it'll be out of necessity
1: again. We've already heard that uh, speculation that campaigns will be trying to reach voters through video games like Fortnite and World of Warcraft or whatever that one's called. But let me, let me ask you, who do you think this kind of brave new world of campaigning favors, the Biden campaign or or a Trump campaign?
2: Well, I think the one thing that's clear is that Trump, both both Trump and Bernie Sanders, both really thrive off and use their big crowds as demonstration of their message. And the energy and coalescing their base and I you know I pushed Sanders aside as you know we as I think it won't matter much moving forward in the primary but in the general I mean it's just hard to see that it's harder to envision the Trump campaign without that is I guess what I'm saying I'm not saying they won't be able to find other ways they will they've been very adroit obviously online and with data mining and all those things and targeting but I think just sort of visually and the message and the and how dependent Trump himself is on that feedback, he that ador- adoration he gets from his crowds, it's likely to impact uh, him more. I think.
0: You know, uh, Joe, uh, before all this started, back you know in the. A few months ago, which seems like ages ago, everybody was very much focused on the threat of Russian intervention, foreign interventions in our campaign. And it just strikes me that if we're going to a virtual campaign where everything is going to be done online, the potential for havoc from foreign malicious actors like that becomes... That much greater. And I just wondered if that's uh, something that we should be worrying about and what we do about it.
2: Well, I mean, one, I think we should be worried about it. I think it is an ongoing problem, will be an ongoing problem for, and by the way, for both candidates. And it won't just be foreign actors. <laughs> <laughs> but people can play havoc with both sides of this, particularly online and particularly, you know, if that's the dominant medium that this is conducted in. The other side of this is I think you may see it just a different kind of campaign altogether where the candidates are sort of doing roving one-on-one interviews with the networks or different, you know, with different anchor, you know, one-on-one for an hour. We've seen some of this on, uh, I think CNN's been doing a lot of it. And also the campaign from the front porch, the satellite, the ability for a candidate to sit there and talk to local television station after local television station, with local anchors, local press, live on the evening news in in Dallas or L.A. or Albuquerque, I think may become really a way that this plays out, almost in a way where the national network yeah, that's going to happen once in a while, but you know, but because of, you know, electoral college in certain states, those one-on-ones on local on a local television station may actually there may be a movement it may move power more to the local affiliates and coverage live from the candidate's front porch with occasional network stuff than the other way around. And so I'm kind of fascinated at seeing how I think we could see several different shifts in how this plays out between now and November. If we're in this environment that long, I think there are some things, just as somebody who's run one of these before, what I would try to do and how I think they may have to move to create as much of a localized campaign in electoral college important state as they can And it just seems to me it's that it's a talk radio. I mean, there's different ways to get there, but from your front porch, calling into the right calling into those radio stations, satellite feed, sitting there on the front porch and just going straight into every affiliate in the in the state one by one and at the same time online.
0: Hey, Joe, one last question, a very narrow, last crass political question for you. You're the chief consultant for Doug Jones in Alabama, the Democratic senator who's up for reelection this fall. It's obviously a key race that will help determine control of the Senate. How does that look to you right now?
2: Really good. We've had a really amazing, he had an amazing first two or three years here where 17 bills bipartisan that he led on that were passed, the president signed them. Yes, he's had differences, but he's a guy who I think has proven that he can find common ground and get things done and and stand up when he thinks something's wrong and has done it. And so the more we look at it, it, we ran a common ground campaign to win in uh, 2017. And with all of this that's going on right now, I think it, 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 even more voters are looking for someone of his leadership style who who really is trying to find common ground, bring people together, get things done. And so I, we feel really good about it. And the Republicans are having the same dogfight runoff fight that they had uh, that we faced in 2017 when Roy Moore and uh, Luther Strange were going at it. Now it's Jeff Sessions and, and Tommy Tuberville that are fighting it out. I
0: don't think you're going to be so lucky as to get, well, you're clearly not going to be so lucky as to get Roy Moore again as an opponent. So uh, you'll have a little harder time on that front.
1: Joe, I've got, actually, I've got one last, less crass question. (laughs) Uh, You are um, an expert in, um, you know, sort of message and helping candidates connect with voters. And so if you were advising Joe Biden right now, in terms of how what his message should be during this really challenging time and what he should be trying to project leadership, obviously, what would your advice be?
2: I think a lot of what he did last night was what I would, you know, hope that he would do. I mean, I think he's, one of the things I think is you have to, somebody's got to call on the American people to act as citizens, to view everything that we do in this crisis as an act of citizenship, not for yourself, but for everyone all of each of us and i think that's what's been missing there's a leadership vacuum in washington that would call that out in the american people and I, I think joe biden has the capacity to do that and that's where i would that's where i would go right now uh if i were advising him
1: okay well thank you so much uh, for joining us on skull and i guess we'll see you on the on the virtual campaign trail <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, it'll be good to see you guys if we we get out there. (laughs)
1: Okay. (laughs) Okay. All right. Take care of yourself. Stay healthy. You too. Thanks to Democratic strategist Joe Trippi and Republican strategist John Weaver for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. Talk to you soon.